You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is episode 136. We are finishing up our month uh, with the film October Sky. We watched it for free with our Prime subscription. So if you have that subscription, you can also watch it for free. The synopsis for this film is the true story of Homer Hickam, a coal miner's son who was inspired by the first Sputnik launch to take up rocketry against his father's wishes. The tagline for this film is sometimes one dream is enough to light up the whole sky. Mm, that's pretty good. I like it. And the other one is based on an extraordinary true story. Yeah, that doesn't really narrow it down too much. Right. I think I forgot to tell you more details about it. So it came out in 1999, and the director is Joe Johnston, who also did 1989's Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, 91's The Rocketeer, 95's Jumanji, and in most recently, 2011, Captain America, The First Avenger. The Rocketeer as well. Boy, this guy likes rockets. He does. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Chris Cooper, Laura Dern, Chris Owen, William Lee Scott, and Chad Lindbergh. I feel like um, I, I unfortunately don't remember their names directly, but the uh, the fellows who played the Rocket Boys, his assistants, are character actors I think many people would recognize. Yes, and most of them continued to work. The DP for this film is Fred Murphy. He did 2007's Trumbo, 2008 Drill Taylor, and also in 2008 In Treatment. It was filmed in mostly Tennessee, Petros Wartburg. I'm so glad I don't live in Wartburg. <laughs> Sorry to all you Wartburgians. I hope that their high school team's mascot are the Warthogs. Right? Um, and Knoxville, Tennessee. It was written by Homer himself, Homer Hickam Jr. His father is Homer, Homer Hickam Sr., even though in the film they changed his name to John, so it wouldn't be so confusing. He wrote the book, and Lewis Kolick wrote the screenplay. So regarding changing the, the, the father's name, I believe in real life, to avoid that same confusion, uh, Junior was known as Sonny. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they could have just stuck with Homer and Sonny, and it would have worked just fine. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if, I believe when this was filmed, his dad had passed. Yeah, yeah. So maybe, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> to your previous point. He wrote many other books. He wrote one called The Rocket Boys that part of the proceeds go to fund a scholarship to go to space camp because Homer went on to work with NASA and serves on the board of um, space camp. He also wrote a film that took place the day after this film Mm. that went from then... I mean, he wrote a book. Did I say he wrote a film? You said film, but you meant book. He wrote a book that took place from the day after this film ended to when he did join NASA, because quite a few things happened between there, because he said the film says he went on to work for NASA, but he was like, well, but there was a lot that happened mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. 40 years kind of in between that. He wrote a book, I believe, oh, 
this this story sounds so intriguing that I might have to look up this book and read it. His mom had a fella and I can't remember now why she married his father, but basically had a fella and then, but then said, no, I'm going to marry, you know, I'm going to hitch my wagon to Homer Hickam senior. And so the guy said, okay, but here's something to remember me by. Cause he lived in Florida and he gave her an alligator and a live gator, <laughs> a live alligator. I thought, Oh, it must just be like a little sculpture. But then Homer is telling in this interview, he says, but then the alligator grew to the size where it was no longer, I guess, safe to have an alligator. And so there's a book called like the return of Albert and his mom and dad put this alligator, I guess, in the back of their car and drove 800 miles from their town in Georgia to Florida so they could put the alligator, so they could take the alligator back home. So I, I have a lot of questions about that as well. <laughs> That's why we right. need to get yeah. our own little book club. We'll uh, get the book yeah. and read it. <laughs> yeah. I'm wow. I don't want to derail this podcast, but yeah, that, that raises a bunch of questions. I know when you told that story and then I looked up and, oh yeah, he wrote a book called, um, taking or the return of Albert All right. is what it is. Although it, the the phrase "The Return of Albert" it sounds like it's a children's book, but I think maybe it's not. But that that does seem interesting. So he um and then he also did one based on the town, and it is fascinating to think. And we still have some today. They I watched one of the videos, a company town. It was very mm-hmm. common, coal miners, lumber lumber yards. I believe my mom even lived in a lumber centric company uh, town also um w- wasn't there a railway based one here in portland so railways and then big factories so hershey pennsylvania apparently still is one of our, our chocolate people yeah remaining company towns and it was fascinating because you i guess you got re- reduced or free housing but you also got paid but sometimes if you went into debt at one of the company stores, then you got paid in company money, not U.S. legal tender. Yeah, they had company script. And, and I think there was some funny business that went on where they would pay people in script that you couldn't redeem elsewhere. And so it kept you beholden to the company kind of deal. But yeah, I think it was attractive at a certain time because of the free or subsidized housing. Yeah, right? it makes me want a documentary on like the company towns, how they got started, how they evolved, and then like the ones that are still around oh, today. Yeah, I wonder if uh, our friend who did a film about the malls has some time in his schedule and he'd be willing to yeah, tackle that, that one. Yeah, doesn't sound like a fascinating... Because yes, does, they yeah. said that one of the downsides was the workers very much felt like they there wasn't a lot of freedom and they were being controlled. Like you said, they could only right. shop. Yeah, and, and I think they were being controlled, but... <laughs> so anyway, we digress. But so he, he was a very, pro, is a pro, prolific writer and continues to write of what he knows, it appears. This film takes place in October. It starts out in October of 1957. And Jeff Bezos from Amazon saw a screening of October Sky in 1999 and in a subsequent conversation with science fiction writer Neil Stevenson he commented that he'd always wanted to start a space company and Stevenson urged him to do so 
and Bezos started the private aerospace manufacturing and service company Blue Origin. And Stevenson became one of the company's early employees. Well, you know, I have to say, uh, Mr. Bezos and your employees, I still do not have my goods delivered by rocket. So that's uh, that's a stretch goal, but they could look at that. They could look at that. Yeah. Another kind of intersection with pop culture is the author of Rocket Boys claimed that the Star Trek Enterprise episode Carbon Creek was based on October Sky, and there are obvious references to the story in the episode. Do you remember the Carbon Creek episode? Not by name, but if I heard a synopsis, I probably would. Now, here's the problem that I have with that. Roddenberry, I thought that was like 62, 63, was Star Trek, the original series. But the story maybe was out there. Yeah, so it maybe it was current. And so, you know, it was in the newspapers five years previous, and Roddenberry knew about it, right? I guess back then there wasn't a lot to read. So, yeah, interesting. Um, I'd be curious, uh, looking at that episode, what when you said Star Trek, I was, of course, thinking of the ep, and I'm pretty sure it's not called Carbon Creek, where Kirk has to make gunpowder to defeat the giant lizard alien. And it reminded me of the scene where they're trying to mix the um, propellant, right? And how exacting a science that needs to be and how easy it is to blow yourself up. Right. I think he even wrote a book because his mom would always say as he would leave, don't blow yourself up. I think there's a book he wrote called that. Yeah, in rocketry blowing yourself up is very common so there is a joke i think it's a joke that in the early days of the jet propulsion laboratory in the hills above pasadena that the trucks that would go in at night were to remove the bodies of the rocketeers who didn't make it i I don't think that's true but they did blow up a lot of the rockets they launched from those hills it's part of rocketry when you're first getting started you blow up your rockets a lot yeah how's that All right, why don't you kick us off with your pickup line, and then we will go into, I have one casting note, and then we can get into our topic. Okay, the pickup line that I I think qualifies, it's off-screen radio announcer, and it is, Washington has confirmed that yesterday, the 4th of October, 1957, the Soviet Union launched history's first man-made satellite into space orbit around the Earth. Which so I this think that a, does work as, as uh, my theory. It was a big deal, and I think I was not around, so I didn't realize it until I did a little bit of research. So the, the Soviets and, and the U.S. were in a race of who could get into orbit first. Is that fair? Was that a space race, perhaps? <laughs> yes. Yes. And it was probably a sense of defeat, yet super exciting that somebody did it. If I'm so modern peoples, including our generation, but definitely those that followed us generally are not aware that at the end of World War Two, nothing stopped, really, that now the, the Germans and the Japanese had surrendered, but the Russians didn't surrender. And so there was everyone was still kind of on a war footing and things weren't necessarily friendly between the two of us. And in fact, Patton famously said that while they were already over there and had the U.S. military at its peak, they should just go ahead and invade Russia and get it over with because they felt like at that time that World War III was coming. It was just a matter. So this was very tense. And of course, 
with the nuclear weapons, if you could get into space, presumably you could drop nuclear bombs on the other guy. So this was, you know, we joke about the space race, it's competition, like it's a medal count at the Olympics. No, it was very serious. It was definitely a big deal for people at the time. This was Jake Gyllenhaal's first role, first leading role, oh, wow. I should say. I did. It's the first thing I remember him from, but I, you yeah, know, it doesn't mean yeah. anything. And I thought it was interesting because as far as cinematography goes, and I know you have more comments that you want to make, there was a scene where the boys, I think it's when they go up to that one area and they're putting a flag. Yep, yep. And it was very reminiscent of the flag of Iwo Jima. It is a direct copy of the Marines raising the flag at Iwo Jima. Now, whether that was the director's idea or the boys themselves, because again, this would have been 1957. That was only a dozen years ago. They would have been aware of, I mean, that would have been a big image iconography in their world. Mm-hmm. Okay. I figured as much because it was just, it was, it was like they were putting a spotlight on it. Yeah, like, it really was. <laughs> but in a way that still worked with the film, I felt, and like kind of a nod to. Uh, and I think that was probably how it felt to those boys at that time, right? It was, like I said, it was still very, there's a lot of competition. It was not peaceful. And these these rocket boys, which you pointed out, the title anagram, or is an anagram for October Sky, which I right. think is pretty darn cool. I actually think October Sky is a really good title. I don't know why... They thought Rocket Boys wouldn't play as well with the ladies, but that was what I had read at one point, that they thought it wouldn't test well. But I have to say, normally I don't like it when they change title, but in this case, I thought October Sky worked real well. Yes. But what I was going to say is the the boys, it wasn't popular in the town. They were thought to be like wasting time, Mm -hmm. kind of hoodlums, because they would, as Homer says, borrow equipment from the mine. (laughs) And he says, sometimes forget to... Return it. (laughs) Return it. He goes, we never stole anything from the mine, but sometimes we would borrow things and then forget to return it. (laughs) And so I think that in a way, these boys were also kind of like these rogue, you know, kind of going against the grain. Right, yeah, yeah. Perhaps our Australian listeners might call them larrikins, if I understand the term correctly. But yeah, they're they're um, going, like you said, against the grain, against the norm. Certainly in that town, right, it's not very wealthy. They're struggling to make ends meet. And so anything that doesn't directly contribute to putting food on the table is considered, yeah, wasteful and selfish. And so his father you know, very much had that mindset of, you know, you're just going to go get a job and, you know, in the mine and you're going to put food on the table and that's what you're going to do. And it was interesting because as his brother is excelling in football and they're hoping to get a scout to come offer a scholarship to the brother, there's no, no realization that, hey, if the kid makes a rocket that's <laughs> successful or at least kind of shows some ingenuity of rocketeering or rocketry he too could get a scholarship dad but that's just not even considered what's amazing about that to continue that thought yes and Werner von Braun is a uh, character in the film um, both on screen but also in the plot and he was famously the head of NASA, but he came from Germany during the war. He and his team, not him on his own, 
They created the V2 rocket. Wait, Werner von Braun wasn't born in America? Hey, there's a lot of people of German names that are born in the U.S., but no, he wasn't. But Werner and his fellow German rocket scientists came to the U.S. as part of something called Operation Paperclip. They were so valuable that the United States government sent guys over to basically pull them into safety and take them to the U.S., so if they're that valuable because they're rocket dudes, you would think that the family would see the kid, Homer, getting into rocketry and say, wow, this is important. Nobody sent U.S. troops to Germany to get coal miners. They sent them for rocket scientists. So you would think they would be super excited. Right. So um, I'm just going to say one thing that I liked about kind of this was cinematography, but I would assume maybe this was in the script. There's very much this beautiful kind of almost like male gaze as <laughs> yeah. as Jake's character Homer looks up to the sky as he's watching Sputnik. <laughs> right. I may actually made note of that. I said male gaze of Sputnik. Yeah, he was just like that's when he fell in love with space and maybe space travel or at least right. just getting up there. Like what's up there. I want to know what's up there. I want to go there. I, I don't know what he was thinking, but it's very much an awe and a, you're watching someone fall in love. Right. And I don't know the math necessarily how high up Sputnik was, but in the movie they show that it was visible. You could see it tra- traversing the sky. And I think that would be fascinating to see, a man-made object that's flying with the stars. Well, yeah, because go back in 1957, that was the first time that's ever happened. Like mm-hmm. that was pre-Challenger and pre-Apollo right. and right. pre, yeah. So I mean, this was at the very beginning of what we know of as NASA and the the, the space program. I mean, just that was a world-changing event, and we, like you said, we grew up with the Apollo program and the space shuttle. So to us, that's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you put people in space. But for them, that was incredible, Mm -hmm. right? And what I think is kind of fun about that from a filmmaking standpoint, but also narratively, is we cast Laura Dern as the teacher who is gorgeous. And you would think normally a 16-year-old boy would have the male gaze of his gorgeous teacher, but instead he's like looking up at Sputnik. So I thought that was neat. Mm-hmm. So what other things did you like from in, from a cinematographic or writing standpoint? So I, I did mention that I think a, a teacher that pretty would be quite a distraction to the teen boys, just hearkening back to my own days as a teen boy in high school. But I thought that they showed her as a human. And there's a scene that you commented on while we're watching it, where when he's decided to leave school and she's so hurt that she ignores him when she leaves. And I thought that was well done because I think that reflected on her as not kind of like the magical teacher, but as actually a real human. And as we find out later, of course, she has her own short time to get things done. And so I thought that worked pretty well. And I liked the way her character was written to stand up to the principal because, you know, I think our tendency now would be to have her to be very vocal and yell at him and, you know, how dare you, sir? But 
at that time, I think all teachers, but especially a woman teacher in 1957 in rural Virginia or wherever, probably couldn't get away with that. And so I thought she was showing her strength in a kind of a deferential way. And I thought that was well done. And then the the one thing is, I, according to what I read, they didn't actually <clears throat> liberate steel from the railway. But I would say it is my understanding that you need special tools to actually move those rails. They're so heavy. And uh, you need cert- uh, and the way they're constructed, there are special tools that you would need. So I don't know if a bunch of team boys with crowbars would really be that effective. But it made for a, a good shot, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, you mentioned like equipment. It was it was touching when they asked that one gentleman to help them. I guess was it like kind of grinding a piece of? I think they needed to make a nozzle, or was it the 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 body of the rocket? But yeah, and and so he was helping him, and he was like, "I could totally get fired," but I bet there was a certain level of kind of excitement of him being part of it too. And then and then his father found out, and since he didn't value what Homer was doing, he punished the gentleman who was helping them. Right, and then later that that man has an accident and it's very hard on homer because he mm-hmm. he became he befriended that that man right i i would think that if you're working in the machine shop you're you know interested in creating things and mm-hmm. making things so i think yeah, yeah there is the, the maker part of him was excited and i thought it was good filmmaking uh, to show that scene where Homer Sr. tells Homer Jr. that that he didn't, the guy wasn't hurt because of him, that he had allowed him after a month of punishment to go back, but the guy wanted to continue to go into the mine for the money, and I think that that also is very realistic at that time. You know, the poverty for those people, money was so important. And then as the character mentions that he's sending money back to Europe, which, of course, was still ravished by World War II, you know, it's not like just because the Germans surrendered that everything went back to normal. It took many years to rebuild the economy. So I I thought it was a good balance of kind of the realism and and the drama of this with, with the film still had, I think, an upbeat and positive kind of overall tone. What other things about the cinematography did you take note of? Well, of course, I I love me a montage. And so I noticed that we had a good uh, coal miner montage and, of course, rocket building montage. Can't live without that. I mentioned uh, before before we started recording that I I noticed there's uh, uh, the images were desaturated. There weren't a lot of colors even was uh, in the art department, but the imagery itself was desaturated which I I think probably matched. If you worked in a coal mine, your life was probably black and gray, not a lot of color there. Of course, it only rains at night in Hollywood, so all of our rainstorms were at nighttime. And then one shot that I really thought was cool, we both talked about this when it happened, is when uh, Homer is first going down in the the elevator. There's um, a kind of a steel grate on top, not chain link, the more industrial version of that, and he looks up through it. And so the camera's looking down at him. So you can see Hall looking up. And then they cut to his point of view looking through the same grate. And you can see Sputnik overhead. Really cool shots. And it was so poignant because it's a moment of defeat for Homer. Right. Because 
he's now succumbing, even though he does not want to work, has never wanted to work in the coal mine. But the dad got hurt. So he has to be the man of the house and go. So it's like as he's descending down into the belly of the earth, he's looking up at really his aspirational goal. And it's like this moment of defeat. Yeah, he's being going away from what he, his dream. Yeah, it's a beautiful shot. And it's just, it's like heart wrenching. It's really great storytelling. I mean, right there in those few few frames, you know, you can see that's the essence of kind of the conflict of the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was good. You briefly mentioned the sets and the costuming. And before we got on, you were talking about, though, that desaturation in comparison to other people's costumes. Do you want to elaborate? Sure. So I I immediately noticed that there is, you know, a Jay Leno level of denim uh, on on those guys. But that kind of made sense. I think in 1957, that was probably work clothes. Yeah. And as I mentioned, if you work in a coal mine, you probably get coal dust on everything. So there's no real reason to have bright colors. But then you would notice, and it would kind of show the difference how the principal, and in particular, the teacher, had very bright colors. So not only did Laura Dern have blonde hair and bright red lipstick, but all of her dresses were bright colors. And so I thought that was excellent visual cue that she was from that different world, right? The world mm-hmm. of, of science and rocketry and not the coal mines. And But I, I noticed that like even the, the decor... Of the homes was 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 um, drab, except for his mother was painting that tropical mural, and in a company town, my first thought was, "Are you allowed, you know, to paint the wall now? Uh, wallpaper you could, but presumably that could be taken down easily." But I noticed the cars as well, the colors, and I think at that time, there there were brighter colors, and we actually see C1 Corvette at one point, and it's bright red. So I think, you know, that again, the, the art department chose those, those cars to show that kind of drab and just dust covered. So I thought that was well done from the art department to, to show that world was a world that was drab, right? There wasn't a lot of oh, pick me up in there. And you mentioned the production design and the rocketeering whoever like the Jamie and <laughs> Adam, Adam yeah. got to build rockets. But then how do you build a rocket? Like I want this one to fail after it goes <laughs> up like 10 feet. Then I want it to spin around and come back towards the earth. Like how yeah. do you do that? I think that going up in success succeeding is probably fairly straightforward. Blowing up on the launch pad, also fairly straightforward. But yes, I had the same note. How do you get one to go up a little bit and then turn to the side and do a loop and then smash down? I don't know how they did it. That's amazing. Good job. I bet it was fun. All those practice. It was. And you know, I I think if we did it now, they would just do it all with CGI. Yeah. And it would be less impressive. Yeah. But I know they did it practically and that, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, very much so. And I'm glad that they got to do it practically. You could see a person maybe saying, well, do we have to show the rocket? Yeah. Could we just show yes. Jake Gyllenhaal reacting. and he reacting? Yeah. yeah. And I love that they that they built them and that the camera op was able to follow them and we have good footage of them going up into the sky. I do know they used a crane because in one of the behind the scenes, I saw a crane oh, shot. Oh, yeah. Fun times. Crane yeah. shots are cool. I told you this, but do you remember who did the music? Because the music is just, the soundtrack is beautiful for this film. Um, 
I believe that you said it was Mark Isham. And because he did the music for the Tom Skerritt, uh, Brad Pitt film, I made the joke, a rocket runs through it. Yes. Kind of proud of my dad joke. <laughs> it's just, I love, I may have to download, because this is great. Mark Isham makes great music for, if you need to concentrate, so you don't want lyrics, but you want to be relaxed, but not put to sleep. I feel like that's a good description of his music. Okay. that No, that is a very good description. If the listener would like to have music that doesn't have lyrics, but is good for a similar kind of thing, please contact me. I can recommend many, many artists. You have a huge playlist for that. Yeah, that's mostly what I listen to. All right. In all of this racketeering, was there any head trauma? Well, there's one visible head trauma. Uh, Jensen gets crushed in a cave-in, and he obviously hit his head because he had the Bugs Bunny-style head bandage of the white wrap. Now, the guy who helped him out, the Russian fellow, he had some sort of trauma because he was drastically injured, but I, we didn't see head trauma. That was our head trauma. Mm-hmm. Did we get a love story in this film? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. We got actually, yes. So there was one girl who was the prettiest girl in the class who had no interest in Homer until he was famous. And so she was interested in his brother, who is the football star, until Homer had the big rocket launch. And then he tried to get together with her. But Homer actually had an almost smoochie with a girl who's credited as Valentine. And they had, like, the romantic arc, but not a lot. It wasn't really explored a whole lot. And Homer had a lot of affection for Werner von Braun. Yes. It, it was mentioned in one of the videos I watched that that was for the movie only. Mm. That he did not write a letter. He did not have a chance encounter. And nobody, there was not a picture that was signed, and so therefore nobody stole the picture. That was all for Hollywood. My question is, I'm curious how this landed for you this time around when they had the signed photo. I got the hint that maybe the mom did it. Like she got the photo and then forged the the signature. And I don't know why I would say that, but that was just kind of the hint I got when I watched it this time. So I'm curious if you had a similar whiff. Not this time and not my previous viewings. Okay. It's your distrust of moms. (laughs) Everyone. (laughs) Okay. How about a driving review? Something more fun to talk about. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, I have to say I was unaware of how many cars from the 50s had suicide doors. And most of the vehicles in this film appear to have suicide doors, which for those who maybe don't recognize the term, that's when the hinge is at the back of the door, the rear of the car side of the door. And they called them suicide doors because the thought was if they get slightly unlatched, the wind would pull them open. And this was before safety belts. And so people could fall out. They're very cool. They're most famous on the 60s era Lincoln Continental as driven by one Dax Shepard. Hi, Dax. And I noticed that a lot of these cars that we had here had them, but then I thought, well, if you're a coal miner, a suicide door does not drastically increase your fatality risk. You're already in a very risky profession, so who really cares, right? Right. One thing that I, I noticed, too, was 
the boys had, or one of the boys had a car and uh, there's a scene where the four of them are in the car and they're first meeting the redheaded nerd kid. And behind Hall, there's a little rear window. It's kind of a wing window in the back seat, and it's cracked. And I thought, this is good storytelling because they show that they're so poor that they wouldn't replace a cracked window, even though we know it, it, it rains and it's very cold there. So we do see a, a red Chevrolet Corvette, which says wealth and modernity, I guess you would call it, as people drive through. And so it kind of shows them as as uh, the land that got left behind. So we, we have a 37 Plymouth Deluxe, a 51 Mercury Sports Sedan, and those are all in these drab green colors. I thought it was interesting. Uh, I was not familiar with this car. The principal drives a black 51 Plymouth Concord Suburban. It was a wagon, but it only had two doors. Why would you make like a station wagon with only two doors. I thought that was an odd design. That is engineering at the time. Just yeah. So somebody, I guess, thought it was a clever idea. Yeah. All right. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. So before we head into our normal, I thought it bared mentioning this film was released in the United States on February 19th, 1999, which was also the 56th birthday of the real life Homer H. Hickam Jr., so that's pretty cool when the that studio cool. plans its release around you. Yeah, I'll have to release movies on my birthday now. Yeah. Um, this film had a budget of $25 million. It made domestically 32.6. And yeah, worldwide it made 33.1. Adjusted for today, that would be like a film making 50, almost $59 million. So that would be over 2x. Well, pretty successful. Yeah, I guess if you doubled the budget today. Though. And it launched the career of one Jake Gyllenhaal. Right. <laughs> it gets a 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb. Critics loved this movie at 91%. And audiences also followed suit, only not as sweet at 88%. The length of the film is one hour and 48 minutes. It is rated PG and it is considered a biography drama family Movie, I would say so. I mean, this is easily yeah, something that 8 to 81 can watch. It's a Universal Pictures film, and it won the Best Family Film at the Critics' Choice Awards. So that confirms our our family film comment. So that just about does it for this month of films. You can get in a final guess. We had Office Space, Men at Work, nine to five and then completing the month is October sky. So turn in your guesses at Christy at dodgemediaproduction.com and let me know what you think the theme for the month is. It's not too late to get those guesses in. So you get yourself entered into our contest for a hundred dollars of an Amazon gift card, but never forget Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge movie podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge media productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. <laughs>